Hi, this is Tony Amendola, Master Braytac from Stargate SG-1, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal of the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Tony Amendola, isn't it? It is. And it's another interview with Jeff, where Jeff got to talk to a member <laughs> from Stargate. And you all know that Jeff is a huge, huge Stargate SG-01 fan. And uh, Tony played Bratok, which I hope I'm pronouncing that right but I'm not sure. Uh, I tried looking it up beforehand, but I think it's Bratok. Um, but yeah, he played him on Stargate SG-1, and uh, Jeff geeked out a little bit, because not only did he play uh, Bratok on Stargate SG-1, he also just played Salieri in the Amadeus play, which they talked a lot about that as well. And I don't know about you, Kenny, but Amadeus, that whole storyline is one of my favorite like classical movie movies. I don't know what to call it, but it's I love that movie. I want to see oh, the play, too. No, dude. I absolutely love that movie. I have seen it. I watch that movie almost every year. Uh, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> Tom Hules is amazing as Amadeus um, in the movie, you know, for the movie. Yeah. It's it's so good. And matter of fact, the King of Austria does this whole thing do the, during everything. He always goes, well, and there it is. And, and there it is. <laughs> you'll hear my brother and I say that to each other. And that's exactly where it came from. Nice. All nice. the time. And I, uh, I absolutely love that. And it's weird, too, because that came out like in 1984. Yeah. 85 and we watched the first time i saw it i was 10 years old 11 years old we were in california visiting my grandparents and that's the first time i remember watching it and i have watched it almost almost every year since yeah i've watched it yeah same i bought it i remember bought, i bought it on first time i watched it um is when it came out on dvd actually so i was late late to the game on that one yeah and, but I, I bought it and watched it and loved it but yeah you know, when i saw that tony had played salieri in the the you know, the stage version, I was like, man, I know I really want to see the stage version, but you know, we're on lockdown, so there is nothing happening right now. Right, right. You're not watching. The, I'd love to see the stage version because that yeah. would be amazing. Be well, so there you cool. go. There so you go. why don't we just sit back and listen to Tony Amendola in his own words? Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the Amazing Braytac, Tony Amendola. Hello, Mr. Amendola. How's life? You know, life is as uh, good as it can be at this 
<laughs> this time, <laughs> uh, this chaos of our current medical issues and et cetera. But no, everything is uh, is fine. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely weirder time than I ever thought I would ever see as a living person. Yeah, this is sort of, this is sci-fi time. This is like the opening of a sci-fi uh, series or a movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I would ever believe the story someone wrote it this way. We'd have a crazy virus that spreads because people don't wear masks. I don't know if I'd yeah. buy that concept, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that we'll be telling uh, stories for years to come. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Are you finding this time difficult as, because obviously you're an actor, a very su a successful um, actor. Is it harder because once again, there's, is there more, is there less roles coming to you because of less filming going on? Is it a, a time where you're finding maybe you're doing more video game voice acting? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, pretty much most things are on around hold right now. So, you know, the notion of a reset of of taking a break, I think, is something, you know, the pace of our society was something we all probably wouldn't have minded doing a little bit of. But the what's problematic is the open-ended nature of, of what we're asked. And that's, you know, the future. So it's thinking, you know, the present is fine. It's thinking of the future and what it will mean to, you know, sort of film and television as we know it. You know, I went in and did do a little bit of... Uh, voice work on something and it was you know voice work is very interesting because generally it's uh, it's patched in terms of executives and uh, creators and then you have a an engineer a director and an actor really there are only three people and generally they're in two separate rooms so it wasn't difficult to follow protocol in terms of social distancing in terms of cleaning the equipment it was you know i felt very safe actually but but beyond that, I think it's when you have an army of people that it becomes more problematic. There is some minimal filming going on, but it's so. I mean, I I think that's the worry. What is it? What does it mean? What is a film set going to be like? What is a television set going to be like? You know. But that said, I think everyone's anxious to get back to work. You know, all over the world, not just in the states, in Canada, in Europe, etc. I guess you know, Iceland made a big push to. Uh, have filming there because you know their case numbers are very low and as you probably know some people are it's sort of like the nba bubble you yeah. know they're uh, proposing stuff like that so uh, you know uh, you know we'll come out of it but you know and in the big in the big picture our our problems are you know not as dire as some of the you know essential workers etc yeah. so so you know i'm uh, you know i'm hanging in there i'm uh, trying to stay creative you know doing a lot of zoom projects which <laughs> <laughs> which aren't, aren't the same. And, you know, I managed to fill my days. It's not, but I do, you know, wonder what the future is and, you know, when things will actually open. Because here in Los Angeles, we did open, you know, and then we got pulled back. So that's, I think on some level, that's harder, you know, to uh, to have to see that light. And, and But anyway, there we are. Yeah, I mean... I would definitely say one of the there's a lot of hurdles right now that need to be overcome for us to go back to living the life we want to live, and I do think one of the hurdles that we do have, especially, or I would imagine you probably have as an actor, is that there are travel bans. You can't, you know, you want to film most a lot of TV movies are filmed outside the country. Most countries mm -hmm. don't want Americans coming back into their country, which limits that as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, they are making exceptions. They are, you can see it in some of the real big films, like I think Tom Cruise is doing something in, in London where they, you know, they brought him in and he had a, 
you know, I think a six-day or some sort, he had to be tested before he left upon arrival, and then every two days or something. But for Mission Impossible, I think they were mid-film. But, you know, we'll get through this. It's, you know, I've I've done a fair amount of theater, and, you know, in the, in, when you read theater history, you know, you realize the theaters were closed, you know, for a year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> and it's just not something that we've dealt with in a century. You know, I'm certain if you if you ask friends, we all. I mean, I I have relatives that died in 1918. You know that you know, which is the only thing we have to compare this to. But you know, I I think we'll be you know we'll be okay once once we and hopefully we'll be better prepared. I, I would definitely hope so. I mean, theater is one of those things that. I don't see ever going away. I mean, even no matter how either advanced people come and with streaming, I don't know, care about issues, how issues are with coronavirus. It survived the bubonic plague. It survived Spanish flu. It survives countless wars across the world. Right. Theater is something that thing is ingrained in the human experience that we just would never let go of. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny. I'm glad you say that. And I tend to agree. I think what will, there's two things I think. One of the dangers is not food, it's economics for theater. You know, it's just so easy to stay home and get quality and interesting material on any of the number of streaming services. And yet it's not the same as being in a theater with 400 people. I can say that from experience, both, you know, as an actor and as a spectator when I was very young, when I was a student. But. You know, that said, the economics of the theater, there was a time when theater was a sort of democratic art, meaning it was, it was within the reach of people. But now yeah. theater is so, can be so expensive, and it's getting pushed into, you know, event theater. You know, the fact that you have, you know, great shows on Broadway that, you know, where it's $200 a ticket or close to it, 175 oh. Oh, and there's I'm Hamilton. About, yeah, I'm not talking about Hamilton. I'm talking, you know, let alone, you know, and Hamilton, of course, has got its, you know, its heart in the notion of the people and democracy and all of those things. And yet the economics, you know, without governmental support are difficult. And so that's what I worried about. But that said, theater will be the last to open among the entertainment when you think about it. You know, I belong to a group in L.A. and they're already trying, you know, it's about it a quarter of the number of people they can fit in that into this space. You know, the notion of six feet is quite difficult. And it also, no one knows what it will do to the experience, you know, of a comedy or what it'll do to the focus. You know, when you do a play, particularly if you're doing a dramatic yeah. play in, in the third act is a kind of stillness. That's the total concentration of the audience on this event. And uh, no one knows how, what that will feel like when there's, when people aren't shoulder to shoulder, what that will feel like for an audience and the actors. But, you know, but we have a while. I mean, you know, many theaters are not even thinking of opening until the, you know, the new year. You now, know, where now, film, yeah, film is planning, uh, television films, hopefully will be starting in September. But, uh, now, as an actor who has experienced live, a live audience, like, do you feel the lack of the audience now of, because being obviously being home now and in the lockdown with, or in quarantine with um, the rest of us, for at least for quite some time, it's way it's far more solitary than probably anything you've had to deal with as an actor. Do you miss? Do you need that energy of the crowd of people reacting to you, of even a crew reacting to you when you're filming? You know, I miss. It's not the reaction that I miss. I, I, you know, I miss the community because <clears throat> generally, in particularly in film and television, you know, unlike theater, the, the crews are, are, are trained. To, 
<laughs> stifle any reaction. You can't yeah. spoil a take unless you know, unless you know, it's during a, a, a filming of a sitcom or something. You know, but generally you don't. You know, you know, after a take is over, if it's a stupendous take or something really unique or funny happened, you might get applause. You know, but that's so far the exception. You know, in terms of film and television, you know, you know, it's very much uh, oh, you know between the directors and the writers and the actors. But you know, in the theater, yeah, I mean, you know, I miss that community, and you know, you get a different energy. I mean, that's. That's part of the deal. I mean, you know, you don't get that in film and television. You don't get that's part of the sort of addictive nature of theater is the oddly, uh, you know, I've always said it's like chemical. It's like, you know, often <laughs> when actors are away from the theater and they say they miss it, what they're missing is the release of adrenaline and <laughs> other chemicals that happens <laughs> at 8.05. You know, it curtains at 8, but they generally hold it for five minutes. And now you're going out at 8.05 and having to do the whole thing. And you may have been great the night before, but that doesn't mean you're going to be <laughs> great tonight. So it's a different, it's a different ball game. I mean, you know, people uh, often say, "Well, you know, what do you prefer?" What do you? And you know, I honestly prefer the variety. I honestly feel there's nothing like I, I finished, for instance, to give you an idea. I finished Zorro. Yeah, I was there four months, and then well, I was back in town about a month when I got Stargate. And I want to, you know, so there I was, okay, so I went from big film to sort of a series, and then I went home and did a play. So that kind of variety is, you know, keeps, it's sort of very refreshing for an actor. And also you're having to change, it's like changing an aperture or a sort of lens, because it's all related film, television, and uh, theater, but there, there are different lenses. It's not the same, but it's the same, it has the same genes. Yeah, I mean, what, one thing I love about going to the theater, I don't go as much now as I used to, but I, what I did love about the theater is that exchange of energy. You could feel the energy mm -hmm. from the actors. You could feel the energy around you from the audience. And, just, and as an audience member, there's nothing quite like that exchange. Mm -hmm. And one thing I, I was wondering when you mentioned ideas of adrenaline, is the adrenaline coming from a fear of potentially fa failing your next in your next performance, or is it just the exhilaration of being on that stage? You know, it's a little bit of both. Early on, you know, you are dealing with nerves. It depends on how long, you know, it depends how long you've been doing the role. It's very interesting, you know. You know, I did a show once in Los Angeles for a number of years, and initially it was, you know, the whole preparation was about getting focused and controlling the energy and the chemicals. And then, you know, you cut to six months of doing the play, and now the whole energy is about creating the desire to do it. Mm. creating the same sharpness so it's they're very different things you have to negotiate and it just like a hitter in or a shooter in basketball or a you, you can be streaky as an actor all of a sudden your show is just flowing it's just there's something about it it just it does itself it's enjoyable and then you'll hit a patch where you think what's wrong you know is it the audience is it the actor there was a uh, there was an actor who uh, he was at a theater for a long time and so he he was fascinated by this of why what it was and he created a log he was at a repertory theater so the same audiences you know they would sign up for the the Friday evening performance you know of six shows over the course of a season and he could in it it was uncanny tell you what the audience was going to be like that night, whether they were going to be a greater audience, whether they were going to be, you know, rather dull and sort of tired. 
you know, you yep. can't blame them. They've been working. You know? <laughs> uh, and so there is, it is truly that there is a kind of symbiotic sort of thing that, yes, the actors deliver the show in a kind of way, but the audience also creates the excitement in the room, their response, their availability. Well, you know, in Rhode Island, you're, you you have a great theater right there. I mean, a long, one of the great theaters, Trinity, right? Oh, in, yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in, in Providence, yeah. you know, that put out some amazing actors. I mean, look at Richard Jenkins, right? He was an actor there for many years, and, you know, next thing you know, he's in The Shape of Water, you know, and after many <laughs> yeah. other movies. So, you know, yeah, so the theater is something I need to go back to. It's not, it's much harder work in many ways, not longer hours, but that notion of an eight-show week, is uh, uh, a tough, it's a tough weekend. Now, when I say tough, I always make the distinction, actors work very hard, but what I describe as work is doing something you don't want to do. Having <laughs> okay. to earn your living doing something you do not, you have no interest in, and you're doing it, it's a noble thing, you're doing it to feed your family or provide for yourself or whatever. Generally, you know, actors have a kind of, it's a vocation as well as a profession. Yeah. And the problem sometimes that exists is when you go, is when your passion has to all of a sudden become your profession. So it means, you know, all of a sudden you're having occasionally to do things you may not want to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it's an interesting thing, but that relationship between theater and media I mean, I never thought I'd be doing, you know, video games that, you know, as a matter of fact, I never really frankly thought I'm not one of those persons who dreamed of being up on the screen. <laughs> you know, I just follow <laughs> the work. I just, you know, it just made sense at a certain time for me to go to Los Angeles because I realized, hey, you know, I'm uh, at that time, I'm a 20th century actor. It's, it's sort of arrogant and foolish to think that, oh, no, I only do theater. I mean, why? That's absurd, you know, to me. So I thought, oh, okay. So I, you know, and I think it's even more absurd in the 21st century to think, you know, an actor is only, you know, in the theater or only in film and television. Right, right. Uh, well, you know, well, I definitely would say video games have opened a new door. I mean, like I said, especially for voice acting, and also with, I guess, stop motion animation, which allows even more performance from basically animation. Oh yeah, and mocap is terrific. I've done it several times, and it's it's great fun. It's great fun, you know. Again, you feel the first time I did mocap, you know, was maybe five five years ago, or so, and you felt like a kid again. You felt, you know, because there was, it was new. It was, you know, there's yeah. a language to it. There's a certain protocol that you have to. do. I mean, they calibrate movements. There are certain uh, things that you have to do before a take. And after a take, and it's it's great. It's all it all feeds each other, and the same thing with just regular, you know, for instance, doing World of Warcraft. You know, stepping into that world was so interesting because you know there's a, it's been going on for a while, and the fans are so passionate about it. So, you know, I just love the variety, and uh, I just hope that continues. Yeah, well, one thing I I was doing some research on you prior to the interview as. I should, as is my job. And I found one thing I found very interesting about you is that you're, you actually started your life pursuing a degree in law at Southern Connecticut State University. So yeah. what drew you first to law and why did you, when did the bug hit you and decided that you needed a master, you wanted a master's of fine arts instead? Well, yeah, you know, that's how things oddly get. See, what happened is I was the first 
the first person to go to uh, college in my family. You know, I was the, and so consequently, what do you do when that opportunity comes? What do you do? You tell your child or you think you need to go into a respectable profession. <laughs> so, you know, that's Acting doesn't count. Law. Law or medicine, right? So, so you know, that was in the back of my mind. And I took a constitutional law class, and it was very evident fairly early on that that wasn't where I wanted to be, that I was, you know, I was led by a sort of, you know, exclusively by what uh, expectations of others or what one should do. And over the course of that, I, I literally... Unlike many people who know when they're eight years old that they've been entertaining their uh, uh, relatives and they say, oh, we always knew he or she is going to be an actor or an actress. I had a perfectly normal childhood uh, in, in many ways, you know, for my class and where I was growing yeah. up, a blue, you know, sort of blue collar thing. And so when I went to college, it was sort of a whole new world. And I literally stumbled in to a, an audition uh, for a play. And that's initially, and I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. What is this world? And it was all social. It was about fitting in and feeling, you know, theater is a very accepting uh, environment for, uh, you know, there are a lot of the, the divergent people in, in theater and it's very accepting. You know, you can be a jock, you can be a goth, you can be a, you know, you can be whatever you want. And they, yeah. so you're absorbed. They need your energy and your effort and your work. <laughs> so I ended up doing that, and that was social. It was about, oh, oh. And gradually, only gradually, did I, I realize, oh, I, I'm interested in acting. And so that's what happened there. And then, you know, I went on to get a master's in it. But it was initially social, and it was it provided me solace. It was interesting. I, I always think education is about, for a kid, is about figuring out any passion they have. And if they have a passion, you can direct it. It always will have shoots. It will always send out branches in different areas. And I became a better student when I decided I wanted to be an actor because all of a sudden English literature meant something. Psychology meant something. There was a re there was a place I could put that. It wasn't just abstract knowledge. And uh, so, yeah, so I, you know, I did law for about two minutes. Now, what was that first role? You said you, that first role that you auditioned for what was it for well I, yeah and it was hardly an audition they needed men it was a teacher's college so it was hardly an audition uh, <laughs> but it was it was the tempest oh and nice. i still remember the line i always joke about it because it's a great line for an actor throughout the, their career the line my first line on any stage as an actor was all is lost to prayers all is lost in the middle of a storm, <laughs> right? And, yeah. I, and I always think, you know, anytime you're going, <laughs> you're going through a rough patch as an actor, and I think all is lost to prayer, to prayer, <laughs> all is lost. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, what would, do you think if you didn't, well, you said you would have had the role regardless, or was it, if you did not get the role, would you think you would have followed that path, or would the disappointment no, have no, stopped? No, no, I literally stumbled in, and they needed men. The, well, you know, the thing I need to make clear, that line, my first line, all is lost to prayers, prayers that was the yeah. only line. <laughs> that was, well, I mean, it, he was a mariner. It's in the beginning. It's said during an absolute thunderous tempest, uh, hence the name The Tempest. No one heard anything I said. I was screaming it at the top of my lungs. And, you know, it probably, if I wasn't put in that play, I probably wouldn't have, I, I may not have pursued it. And, uh, you know, as I said, I needed 
as I think most kids going from high school to college need a place to put their passion. They simply do better if they have a structured place to put it. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and with theater, you know, interestingly enough, I know actors are, you know, the rap on actors is that we're somehow flaky. Theater actors are not flaky, not if they're successful. Meaning yeah. you, you have to be at a certain place at a certain time, otherwise you don't have a job. You know, <laughs> so it provides a certain discipline. Uh, you know, provide. But I was always fairly self-sufficient and disciplined, so that wasn't difficult for me. I played basketball in high school, and you know, anyway. Well, it, it's amazing how sometimes fate plays a role in our lives like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, you literally were in the right place at the right time, and you found just the right thing to spark that passion within you. Right, and it was you know it was also coincidental that the director of this was the former lead head acting teacher at the Yale Drama School. Oh wow, that's who she was, and she had just retired because theater was changing. You know, Yale. This was the late '60s, so yeah, Yale was you know there was a new artistic director, and they were they were much more into a contemporary style of theater. And her experience was in uh, a more traditional. So she was older, and she ended up teaching at this state school, and that's and she would coach me. I had this little role, but she recognized that I was sort of passionate and I was interested. So she gave me a bunch of understudy things to do, and she would work with me during her lunch hour. I can still see her. Her name was Constance Welch, by the way. She taught Paul Newman. She taught oh, nice. tons of actors that came through there, and she would just sit and. I remember her eating her lunch, and she would munch on her lunch, and I would recite, you know, for the first time, any, you know, uh, Shakespeare, Caliban, Stefano, and, and that was, you know, and so that uh, was sort of unique. So it was almost like I had a tutor in a kind of way, and she would talk me through it, and, you know, so, it, you know, it was, you know, and a then afterwards, it wasn't difficult for me to get cast in plays because there were many more women than there were men. And so I was able to get a lot of experience, but not enough to think <clears throat> that I was ready to go into the professional theater. And so I, you know, I went and got a, a graduate degree and, you know, which was a conservatory at Temple in Philadelphia, Temple University. And, and then I also had a, it was an MFA, which means I could teach on a college level, which was sort of a fallback sort of plan if necessary and uh, you know and i have taught actually but it was uh, it's always been i've never uh, i mean for instance initially i i could have gone right into a teaching position but I, I just didn't feel it was right to teach actors without having professional experience myself to teach actors acting you know it's yeah. one thing if you're teaching some of the you know literature or you're teaching style or something so you know i said no which was <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any money or anything. And, you know, luckily I was hired and I worked, got to work fairly quickly out of school. Oddly, in the theater in at uh, Ashland, which was, you know, I was at Ashland for two years, you know, doing a, a repertory situation, you know, doing uh, three or four plays in rep, meaning that, you know, they change every night. And then was able to continue that in Seattle for a year and then go down to uh, San Francisco and Berkeley for 10 years. So I didn't go to L.A. until I was in my late 30s. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, because I was a character man. That was, there wasn't, and right, I was right. able to, yeah, you know, I was not, it was never about selling my youth. I was going to grow in 
to where I would be valuable. And it's it, because we all have that as actors. There's some actors who need to be in L.A. or in New York when they're young. This, this is, yeah. you know, they, they have that. Youth is written all over them. I wasn't, you know, I was, I played a 15-year-old boy, the second play I was ever in. And after that, never played anything under 35. Oh. <laughs> so, you know. Anyway, well, but I'm talking so, too much. Wait, yeah. No, you're doing, no, you're, fan, you're fantastic. I mean, I'm enjoying um, listening to, to you talk. So you were, like you said, you're the first person in your family to go to college. So what yeah. happened when you told your family that you were not going to be a lawyer after all, and now you're going to be an actor. Did they embrace you? Did, were they like, well, no, you're going to be something more practical. I mean, how, what was yeah. their response? Well, you know, they were, no, I think they really, it, it was a situation, it was a very working class family, so you were responsible for yourself. We all worked, me and my brothers, we worked from the time we were like eight, paper roots, and it was all, you know, so consequently you were responsible for your choices. I did get the chat from my older brother who was, you know, are you, are you sure? What does this mean? But you see, they didn't, they didn't understand. But mm, my mom was always fine with it as long as, you know, as long as I wasn't getting into trouble or doing, you know, you know any of the excesses that come with any kind of profession like that. She was fine. She wanted me to be happy. And, but she, uh, you know, I also had to be responsible for myself. So I... Always, you know, if I was out of money, I worked. If, you know, I got another job, luckily I was able to get fellowships uh, and scholarships. So it wasn't, but I always had a job, even when I was in grad school. I would either be a teaching assistant or even the first year I was a uh, the box office manager, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> so you were just used to it. So they didn't give me a tough time, but it was because they didn't quite understand. And on some level, it's good. Because it is a crazy profession, and the odds, the odds of making a living, I mean, you know, any, I mean, you, we belong to a union where, you know, on any given week, 90, 90 to 95% of the union members are unemployed, you know, I forget, <laughs> you know, something yep. like, you know, close to 90% of the SAG after actors earn, you know, under something like fifteen or $18,000 a year. You know, so it's not a practice. It's not a practical place. You have to have sort of a passion for it and maybe you'll get lucky. But that said, I think it's wonderful training for life. You can get good teachers because as actors, what we're finding out about is life. We're not it's not about self-aggrandizement, making ourselves. It's about sort of having a job that asks you. The question, what is it like to be somebody else? Yeah. And how, and what connection is there between people? How can I substitute my desire for a certain thing and create a believable character and discover what their desire is? Their main focus in the world is their uh, raison d'etre. You know, so you may or may not know, I mean, uh, in Elizabethan times, literally the Elizabethan playhouse is loosely based on what are called inns at court. Which were lawyers, which were lawyers trained. Really? So the notion of rhetoric and all of those things and use of language was, was also training to be a lawyer in a strange kind of way. So, but I, I can't tell you how, you know, in hindsight, I realize how lucky I was. You know, I, I was always I, I, just, yeah. I would so say, that, I mean, I would imagine then a primary trait that all actors must have then, I would assume then, is some level of empathy. 
yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, on some level, I think great actors have that. Yeah, I think, yeah, you need, you know, there's so many things that go into sort of, and, and also we have to also separate the difference between film and, tele, film and television and theater. For instance, the importance of the voice in film and television is minimal. Okay. But in theater, it's very important, I think. There was a great, great Italian tragedian who was asked the key to great tragic acting. He was a 19th century actor, and he said, voce, voce, più voce, which was voice, voice, and more voice. <laughs> and you think, oh, That's no, cool. no, no. Well, you know, and you do it long enough, and you realize there's some, there's some truth uh, to that. And also, because in theater, it's about commanding the space generally it's taking over the room and, and because theater is a very different thing if you think about it theater is much more democratic because the audience creates the close-up they decide who they want who they wish to look at they can be mm. on stage with the biggest star in the world and of course the eyes will go to the star initially but if he or she doesn't deliver then the audience is free to create their own close-up and to go and oh what is that guy doing what is that woman doing whereas in in film and television, of course, it's all edited, so you don't see the world that's happening around, you know, and you don't see the full picture of the room. You only see close-ups or an occasionally wide shot. So, but film, I think, is all, it's truly about vulnerability. It's about letting, there's a fierceness because the camera's right there and the camera can smell artifice. So you, you truly need to be in the moment. And kind of, if camera can smell artifice in a way that it, you can get away with on, in the theater. But so it's all about letting it in. It's all about, it's all about the eyes. It's all about having the experience and taking the time. Whereas, you know, theater seems to be, you know, a little bit more snappy and a little bit more presentational, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's, you said owning the, like owning the stage or owning the space. Is that yeah. something that's instinctual or is that something that you can practice or, you know, is that just in, someone just has it or doesn't? I think it, I think you can develop it. I think some people just simply have it. There are people that walk in a room and for whatever reason, you know, it could be beauty. It can be charisma. It can be any of a number of things. It can be size. Uh, you have to remember one of the things about an actor is very important. Is you have to look yourself in the mirror and decide really who you are, you know, and it's not who you are. I almost said who you are because it's not who you are. It's about what you've been given physically because that is your entry card into this profession. Anyone who thinks that's what, you, that's what you're bringing. So you need to know what that is so you can do that. And if that's what we required of you to enter the profession, to, for instance, in my case, to play villains or play heavies or play, you know, simply because of the way I look. You know, then you take that and you do that and you, and, and luckily, you know, villains are complicated, uh, characters are, are wonderful people to actually, you know, <laughs> have to play. They're, they're great yeah. challenges and some of the best roles. But you do that to get in and then your face will change, your body will change, or your stature within the industry will change and someone will finally say, you know, you've been doing villains all this time or you've been doing heavies, you've been doing drug dealers, you've been doing crazy people. You, who do you want to play? And you can say, oh, I've always dreamed of playing blank and now you have the power and the stature to do that. So, But it's very important to know sort of how you're going to be perceived. You know, when I first came to, it's slightly different in the theater because it, at least 
my experience, because it was a repertory company, and you got to play a variety of things and ages. But when you come, I'm pretty much talking about film and television, where, you know, physical, you walk in a room, I mean, I remember the same teacher, Constance Welch, I hadn't been, I took her acting class, and she, she lined us all up, and this may sound crazy, she lined us all up, and she said, heavy, light, heavy, in terms of what our aura, or what our, what our energy was on stage. It had nothing to do. You know, very light people were, who could do great at comedy were actually in life quite sad and upset. Yeah. You know, people who you perceived as being, you know, villainous and sort of frightening and scary were sweethearts. But you have to understand what you present. You know, that's crucial for an actor, particularly, I mean, particularly in film and television, where there is no time to rehearse. There are no readings. They call them readings. They're actings. Anyone who yeah. walks into an audition coldly reading the material in front of them is living in a dream world. <laughs> and it's, prob <laughs> it's probably not working. <laughs> you know, there's the old joke about, uh, you know, what did they say? You know, by God, I'm an actor with an MFA, and uh, would you like French fries with that hamburger? You know? <laughs> you know? So. I mean, you, your career has been absolutely amazing. I mean, I, I was looking through IDMB Pro, and you've been in some very popular movies and series. Yet You had a small role, but I still remember the, your small role in Seinfeld, which was amazing. Right. Even in Dexter, Once Upon a Time. Do you have a favorite role or moment from your career? Well, I mean, I do, but they're all quite different for different reasons. Seinfeld, <clears throat> I don't get a chance to do a lot of, because, of, as I said, people don't perceive me as a comic actor, except there's one person who perceives me as a comic actor, and that's my wife. But, <laughs> but, but uh, so I didn't, but you, you know, my, the way people perceive me, they, they, I didn't get a chance to do a lot of sitcoms. But I, the ones I did were choice. And so working on Seinfeld was a dream, because it was one of those, shows that literally made me laugh out loud the sensibility growing up in new haven you know and you know that manhattan sensibility of the northeast yeah. uh, was quite funny to me so that one was special i'm trying to think west wing I oh, was oh that was a, what uh, you're the ambassador of uh um, yeah qatar right was it yeah, qatar yeah oh. fantastic series one of the great series and you know anytime you can you know speak those words obviously stargate because of, yep. you know, the opportunities and, and it was a gift that kept giving and who knew, who knew, you know, uh, you go up, I went up to do an episode and I hit it off with Chris Judge and it was a good episode and, and the next thing you know, you know, you, you end up doing 26. So they're all, and uh, the Zorro's because, you know, one of the great, you know, it's a, a franchise and it was sort of my chance to do, I, because I did both films, it was a chance to do two big studio movies and that's a whole it's yeah. like moving a city and you know antonio banderas and anthony hopkins who was one of my you know one of my favorite actors and all of a sudden you know you go from it was like being called up a little bit from the minors you know <laughs> what i mean it's like all of a sudden yeah. struggling in the minors you're working you're earning a living it's all that and you know you know you can play with the big boys but you have to be invited and all of a sudden you know being invited and uh you know, I'm trying to, Once Upon a Time, again, fascinating series, Continuum, I'm trying to think, there's a lot of different ones, you know, I, there's a, it's interesting, there are different episodes, there's an episode of, I realized I'm one of the few people who actually did Star, Stargate, Star Trek, Babylon 5, 
and because of the game, Star Wars. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, cool. because of the game. That's a nice but, resume. But, yeah, you know, it was just coincidental. I thought, oh, my God, those are different worlds. But t- there's an episode called Needs of Earth of Babylon 5 Crusade. That's, you know, when I look back, is a very fond sort of memory directed by Mike Vehar, who did a lot of the Voyagers and, and stuff. Uh, so, you know, I've been I've just been very, very lucky to do different blow, for instance. Blow was so I haven't. It's funny. People people try to put you in like a genre and yeah. listen, if, and if you can earn a career within one genre and do that much work, God bless you. But generally, you know, most actors have to venture in, we venture in and out. And I've always been, you know, sort of proud that I could do Seinfeld and Stargate, do blow well, or, you know, Zorro and right, right. Uh, Star Trek Voyager. You know what I mean? That the uh, X, I even did an episode of X files one time that was, <laughs> bizarre episode so it's that variety yeah well before we get too far away from Seinfeld because I I do remember some of your episodes very well you were am I pronouncing it wrong Salmon Rushdie correct Salmon Rushdie yeah and did you ever meet the real Salmon Rushdie and did uh, Rushdie did he say anything about your role you know, I, 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 that's a great question. I'd have to ask him if I ever met him, but he's, you know, he's a great writer. And yeah, I played the guy that's, that Kramer, in his conspiracy theory mind, thought. Right. <laughs> and uh, if, for the people that are really into it, I, my love interest in Seinfeld was Terry Hatcher. I was you just know, about from, to mention that, that was very yeah. impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and uh, yeah, it's sort of, it's always interesting too, you know, because you grow up and these people aren't. She wasn't quite Terry Hatcher yet. Yeah. And I remember I did an episode of a play, something called The Raven. And Marsha Cross was a sort of love interest in that, who was, you know, on Desperate Housewives for a long time. And, and I mean, there's so many, uh, you know, wonderful people that y- you meet, but you don't, you, you, it's hard to really truly remain in contact with. But yeah, yeah. there's plenty of fond memories. So. So, so Terry Hatcher... Did you, could you, can you tell when someone is going to be a breakout eventually? Does, can you, people talk about the it factor. Could you, can you tell yeah, when someone I has the I it could. factor? Yeah, I thought, I, I certainly thought, yeah, she definitely had, you know, something, something special, you know, you can tell, you know, it, it's funny because it's all different. Like I could, I, I knew or felt strongly that Amanda Tapping was going to go on to be a director and a producer and do other things as well as act. It was just very clear. Her people skills were such. And when we were doing Stargate, that I realized, oh, boy. And so that was, it, it didn't surprise me, and it was sort of interesting. So I probably, I don't know, maybe about seven or eight years later, I went up to do an episode of Continuum, and Amanda was directing. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, you, so, hello, sir, I can't hear you. No, I'm not. I'm. I'm not talking. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were, um, talk. Well, I, I, since you did bring up, I do want to. That's it was, that is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Stargate uh-huh. was so so brilliant. I mean, it was. It, it has that a little bit of elements of the original Star Trek, where you, they go different planets, the feeling of exploration. But it was also so much fun, and you were definitely one of the best characters to ever appear on uh, Stargate SG-1. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I loved it. Oh, I loved it. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. You know, but so, even that was an accident. And I, the thing that excited me was do, was going up to Vancouver because I loved that city so much. My wife and I had passed through on a, on one of our first trips. And so it was all about getting back to Vancouver. And little did I know it was going to be, it turned out to be such an important part of my, my life. And, you know, getting to work with Chris Judge, who 
you know, he's another one, you know, just like Amanda, you knew. I mean, Chris writes. He wrote a number of the episodes that uh, I was in. <laughs> you know, and, and, it's a, yeah. yeah, and it's, it's amazing because Christopher Judge, I mean, to look at Christopher Judge, you know, he's a big, strong guy, and, and Carrie plays it so quiet. You wouldn't think that he, you know, was, you know, he is a writer, but he's also a terrific writer, you know? Oh, no, he's a terrific writer. And, you know, for anyone who said, have you ever seen Chris at an event of any kind? I, I unfortunately have not seen any of the Stargate people at a convention, unfortunately. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Because Chris, I mean, that character, uh, <laughs> the character on uh, uh, Stargate, he is he's so much fun in person. You know, he's just completely on Stargate. You know, we're into the Jaffa sort of, you know, stoic sort of thing. But no, he's a crazy person. And, he's, <laughs> you know, he's got everything. He's just got, he's got this... Uh, this childish wonder that's an appetite and a lust for life, you know, this id, and he has great intelligence and just great humanity. And, you know, uh, he's amazing. He's amazing. But yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Vancouver, too, you know, there's so much uh, that was uh, done up there, you know, that see, the other thing about acting is the travel, you know, it's, yeah. I'm a terrible tourist, but I love traveling. <laughs> When I say I'm a terrible tourist, meaning the notion of going and saying, oh, it's Tuesday, I have to do blank, 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 is not appealing to me. What's appealing to me is to be working in a city or wherever, in a country, with a mixture of obviously actors from around the world, otherwise I wouldn't be there, and local people so that you can say, hey, where's a good restaurant or, you know, where's a good museum or where's a good garden or what's interesting, you know, and then... On your day off or your weekend off, you go, you investigate, or they often will take you. I, I just love that, you know. And because a lot of I did a lot of work in Vancouver, I feel like I'm almost an honorary Canadian, you know. I, I, I've spent <laughs> yeah. winters up there, you know. None of this. It's great there in the summer, you know, long sunny days. But you be you spend a couple of winters up there, and you get an honorary maple leaf. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so when you got your role as Braytac, which is once again one of the great, I think, science science fiction roles in the history of television, what did they tell you about Braytac and how did you go about creating the character of Braytac? Well, they didn't tell me much. You know, it was all there. He, you know, he the specifics. He was 133 years old, and you know, Jaffa Wari, who was mentor and uh, teacher, father figure to Tilk. But none of that had any life because it hadn't been hadn't been fleshed out. It hadn't been on screen. It wasn't like you were taking a character like Once Upon a Time. I played Geppetto. There were forms of Geppetto. Then that became a rebellion of how I can find my own. Geppetto. With uh, mm. Braytac, there was no Braytac yet. He, he didn't exist in the movie. He was created for the series. So consequently, you go in and you think, oh, God, well, you're looking, you know, as an actor, then you're looking for a way in. You're looking, it's like you're, or a way out into light. You're now caught in this dark space of what is this role? How can I get to the light, to the clarity of the role? And the first person you meet is the customer. You know, and the designer, and I thought, oh, I see. So he is a medieval samurai Roman warrior, stoic sort of thing. Oh, okay, that's fine. But, oh, so I need to be, all right, it's 133, but he's not. In other words, he's in great shape. They're not playing the age. I thought, I worried that I was going to be in a makeup chair for hours. And, of course, no, that wasn't the issue. And so all of a sudden, my next thing is to find out, 
<clears throat> get away from myself, I realize, okay, who does he care the most about? What is the most important thing to him? And that, of course, is Tilk. So mm. you know, who's, who is Tilk? Who's Chris Judge? So oh, okay. And then you meet Chris and you realize, oh, well, this is going to be easy. You know, we never, yeah. I, I don't want to misrepresent, we never had any great long discussions. We just sort of looked each other in the eye and thought, well, I could care about him. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because sometimes, I really want to say that, is sometimes you think, oh, I'm supposed to love this person. I'm supposed to love this woman. I'm supposed to, and you realize, man, there's nothing there. So that's <laughs> when the actor, quote unquote, has to use substitution. You know, but it, yeah. it was very easy with. So in my first episode, <clears throat> my protective nature of Tilk, I thought, OK, so that's he's covered. It's paternal. It's caring. It's about, you know, that he's the new great warrior. He could lead. I'm past my prime. He can be the one to lead us out of this slavery. Mm. So anyone so else that's around him. Anyone else is around him, because I don't know the Tari at this point. I don't know SG-1. Uh, I'm ad- adversarial to them. They oh, are, okay. You know what I mean? So you ended up creating... So I, if you recall, the first time I, I see them, it's like, who are these guys? And why are you trusting? And I, why are you trusting them? Look at them. You know, I remember I grabbed... Uh, there was a wonderful moment. <laughs> if you ever watched that first episode, very oh, first Oh, Bloodlines, yep. Yeah, I, there's a moment where I, I'm looking at Amanda and I'm thinking, you know, I don't get that women can be great warriors at that time. I learned very quickly after that. But <laughs> I go up to Michael. I remember, and I, I think I felt Michael's forearm, you know, it was all tactile. You know, he's not, you know, and, but then I grabbed his arm and I bit him. Yeah. yeah. I actually grabbed his arm and he was like, no, nah, you know, and I remember Michael looked at me like, what? <laughs> you know, but it, you know, so it was very free, and of course, the leader is the one I'm most suspicious of. So you end up to answer your question. You create your character out of a blend of asking yourself questions and then trying to answer them concretely. Okay, who who is this? To can I care for this actor? Can I? Yes. Well, that's great casting. There's no worry there. And warmth. And from the moment we met, we felt sort of a bond and. <clears throat> You know, luckily that came through because they kept writing. I hadn't, as I said, I found that generally when people tell me I have a recurring role, they're trying to get me for less money. They're trying to negotiate. <laughs> uh, <Stagger laughs> never said this was a recurring role. It became a recurring role well, through that, action. That, that, through. So, so basically, your tether to Braytac is Teal. Yes. Well, no, uh, yes. I mean, you know, you try to understand where he's coming from, what his beliefs are, and you try to, you know, create a circle of where your affections are, of how you view the world. The other, oh, the other great thing, I was fortunate enough <clears throat> to have my first episode was directed by the guy who directed the movie, and his net, not the, uh, excuse me, the first episode that was the film of the TV series. His name was Mario Azapardi, and he's a Maltese a big barrel-chested guy and he is also influential in you know and how I played Braytac and he'd come over and say no Tony Tony no I think he has more energy is bigger bigger you know don't be afraid <laughs> don't be afraid don't be afraid no and Mar- and you know and you know he's giving me license and liberty and I kept watching Mario because Mario so there's part of Braytac I got from Mario Ray Jack initially, 
he's a rougher, rough and ready sort of guy, you know. And over the course of the series, he eventually falls into more of a statesman, you know, as the they're trying to create a sort of peaceful world. But uh, mm. initially, so even he changed over the course of that. I stopped wearing my Jaffa helmet, and uh, you know, he was more more in robes. So there was a nice sort of arc to it, but the initial creation was, it's the only thing you can do, you know, so it's so hard for film and television because theater, you have four weeks to figure that out. You walk in, you got four weeks to create a structure that film and television, you know, uh, you arrive one day, you're shooting the next, and it could be the most important scene. Generally, for a guest star initially, it is. Because yeah. they're resting, the regulars have just finished an episode and they need to learn the new episode. So <laughs> you tend to be heavy, you tend to have heavier days if you're a guest star initially. You have heavier dialogue days. So the combination of, so you have to create with what's in front of you in, in film and television, ideally. And uh, so Mario, Chris, even, you know, Richard Dean Anderson, sort of his dry humor sort of played into it because that's his character. You know, he's got this. And of course, I, I didn't get it and didn't laugh at it and was always yeah. suspicious. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and what's great about that is then over the course of those episodes, I finally began understanding O'Neill. And the one, the only one character that I sort of got from the get go that I, I sort of uh, intuitively understood was Don Davis's Hammond. Okay, because gotcha. what he did for SG One, I understood as Braytac. You know, so mm. we always had a warm relationship. You know, one of uh, you know, and it, it was sort of wonderfully written because they kept talking about Hammond. So I almost had an image of him before I actually finally met him, mm. and that was that was great. And of course, Don was Don. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing about Braytac, obviously, because you got to be your Braytac. You're the great master Jaffa. Obviously, you had to be this great fighter. Did they train yeah. you at all in how to fight during it? Or, you know, did something kind of just figure out how Jaffa was supposed to fight? No, there were, you know, there were, there were rehearsals for that. But, you know, as an actor, you, particularly, you know, theater actors, you do a fair amount of stage combat if you, you know, if you've done the classics, you know. So I had done a fair amount of Shakespeare, and there's always, you know, in the tragedies, at least, there are, you know, battles. And so I was okay. I, I don't want to misrepresent but, you know, I mean, I was okay. And you come into that. The only thing that happened is, you know, generally you want to do more than they'll let you do, you know, because they don't want you to get hurt, you know, so you're dying to do some of the stunts. But but the fights, you know, you did and, and it was fun. It's fun, but you're creating them because the environment is so important to the fight of how they can use, you know, are there hills, it's flat. And the style of fighting, because we had staff weapons, it's different. They tried to create a different thing on different planets. Uh, to be honest, Chris got the bulk of that because, uh, you know, Chris was, was young. Although Chris and I had a wonderful fight, if you remember, in oh, Threshold. Yeah. Uh, it was the fight in the snow. Yeah. You know, where he, it's a flashback. I, it's one of my favorite episodes. Brad Wright wrote it, and it was, it was our backstory. It was Chris and I. You know, we, you see him as a young student when I finally reveal to him uh, what's going on. And that he could be our future, or frankly, he could turn around and turn me into uh, office, and I'd be history. And we have this. I'm trying to egg him on. We have this thing where uh, we're going to train, uh, and it was out in the snow, so it was great. And Chris says to me, uh, he says, "Oh, you know, we should do this bare chested." 
Yeah. I said, oh, that's great. That's great. You know, it's a good, good idea. The two of us are out there, you know. And then I, I see, I'm older than Chris. And I'm thinking, yeah. okay, this is a, uh, this is, this could be a 10 hour day here outside, let alone, you know. So I go back to Chris and I say, you know, Chris, it'd be even better because you're the acolyte and I'm sort of the uh, teacher. And so you should be. So, oh, yeah, yeah, great. So, you know, you cut to five hours later and he's shivering. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a moment in it. This Smart. is the goofiness. This is a goofiness that I love. And it was Peter Deloise directing this episode. And I said, Peter, you know, finally Tilk rebels. And that's what I want. I want him to rebel. And yeah. I, so we're going to stand off, you know. And I say, you know, this is actually Braytac is sort of goading him on. There should be some fun in this. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, so the first move, and we didn't know if we'd keep it. If you watch our first, I, I call him out and say, you want to fight? Okay, bring it on. And I go to him, and he comes to me. But then before we start fighting, I bow to him very formally. He yep. bows back, and I give him a three stooges hit in the head with the staff. You know, <laughs> So it adds, you know, it's not a, a life. You're aware that something else is going on. And I love to this day that, that the producers and Peter decided to keep that moment because it was also the playfulness of Braytac. It, it was literally, you know, very formal. We're both angry. I'll teach you a lesson. No, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm sick of being a student. Okay, well, you got to bow to each other. You, oh, you're going to bow? Bang. <laughs> you're you're going to let your guard down? You're like, there you go. You know, and it was, anyway, you know, there are a million of those things. And, you know, what a great, also main cast and supporting cast, you know, you know, Cliff Simon, you know, and I mean, it just goes on. Tyrrell, Alexa, who came in later, you know, working with Alexa. I'm sorry, guys. We actually had Cliff Simon on a couple of weeks ago. He's a very cool guy. It's fun oh, to talk he's to. Great. And he's doing that series now, you know. His, yeah, uh, Into the Unknown, yep. series. Yeah, it's yeah. There were great, you know, great people on, and it's you know, people keep saying, "Oh, you know, if they, you know, if they start it up again, will you go do it?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as long as the people are there, you know. Yeah, I mean, I can only wish the best for that franchise and for the people involved. So I uh, count me in. The the only thing that bothers me, and I looked hard, I couldn't find it. There's no Braytac action figure, at least not that I could find. It's funny, you know, it's funny because someone gave it to me. I have one, but maybe it was never... Yeah, that is strange. Uh, you know, I don't know. There are a lot of strange things. I've never been to the show in Rhode Island. I mean, I find that strange considering, <laughs> you know, I, was, I grew up in the, the next state. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but well, you got to come person. to Rhode Island Comic Con one day. Yes, I'd love to. Who do you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll shout it out on their web um, Facebook page. From I think it, the next show is in July. If there's well, actual conventions at that point, I'll shout you out as many times as possible. You got it. So next July, I think hopefully we'll have we'll be able to have something. I, yeah, I hope I so. Have, yeah, you know it's funny because so much of my work, I never was one that thought, oh, you know, I can't wait till I'm older. I'm going to go to Los Angeles. That was, as I said, I followed the work school from New Haven to Philadelphia to New York, then got work in Ashland, got work in Seattle, got work in uh, San Francisco. Occasionally went to. Milwaukee and, you know, then came to L.A., Utah, you know, as well as, you know, some of the you know, Bulgarian things in Mexico. Uh, I've always, it's, but I've hardly done any work back east. At Center Stage in Baltimore, Williamstown Theater Festival, which is not far from you. I had opportunities for Long Wharf and Yale Rep, but I, was always, I always had a conflict and that, I always sort of regret that, you know. Because, but actually, it would be hard to go back to your hometown. 
it, it, it Rhode Island Comic Con is a fun convention. Um, I, I've, I've done it a few times. A few. I actually I do very small indie comic books, and I have I've been able to get a table a few times at Rhode Island Comic Con, and it, it, it's a fun show. And we definitely I, I've been the, the one or twice once or um, twice that someone from Stargate has appeared at Rhode Island Comic Con. I was not able to make that show, and I was been disappointed for a long time. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I think Richard Dean Anderson ended up going to Rhode Island Comic Con. That was the same year I had already paid to go to Trificon in Connecticut, uh, and I obviously can't afford to go to both shows, so I was stuck with uh, Trificon at that point. Yeah, but <laughs> but, um, uh, but anyways, yeah, I, I was gonna say so. Braytac's very last appearance on Stargate is in the tenth season, an episode called Italian, where mm-hmm. Braytac reveals to Teal that he was uh, basically views Teal as his son, and I thought yeah. that was a, a nice end to those two characters. But I kind of wanted Braytac to have a last episode where he's you know doing something more you know, action, fighting, battling, or something like that. Did, did you feel that yeah. he was a, was a good end for him, or did you want some, or were you happy with how they resolved it? No, I, I was pretty happy. You know, it's funny, for the longest time, if you recall, they were threatening to kill Braytac, you know? Oh, wow, and I actually didn't a, know that. Yeah, well, well I, what I mean they were threatening is that he was in jeopardy. They put him in okay, jeopardy, yeah. and he himself wanted to die, if you recall. He said it was time. You know, he, he wasn't, he, yeah, he has some wonderful scenes where he's talking about that. It's almost like he's slightly depressed about the, uh, the situation. He has one, a great one with Terry Chan, and it's a Zen monk. I don't know if I forget the name of that episode. It, it's a very Japanese feeling episode. And then he, but throughout that, there's been a sense that my time, he needed Tilk. That was one of the other reasons he needed Tilk, because his time, he felt the pressure of time. So, you know, he was going to die. And so, they hinted at it a couple of times, and and then so back then you wouldn't get a script via email; you'd get it delivered to your house. And often I was working when the script came, so I'd say to my wife, "How am I doing? How am I doing?" She'd go through, "Oh shit! Oh, excuse me." <laughs> she'd go, "Oh no, it doesn't work. you know." And oh no, you you're alive! <laughs> Yay! And so after doing that, oddly, two or three times. It became when they needed when it came time for them to kill a character, which in a series they do. It became sort of anticlimactic to kill Braytac. I felt so. I ended up living <laughs> for a lot longer, you know. So, yeah. so I wasn't upset with. Yes, I mean I agree. I uh, you know I I would have enjoyed you know going out in a blaze, but somehow to the story, the importance and warmth of the story, to the base note of the relationship between Tilk and Braytac, it was important, more important to have that scene. Mm. Finally, well, I, I can, so I can tell, yeah. you, you know, tell what you were saying. I would love to have seen Braytac appear in some of the, in the movies, but once again, though, you're talking about a character that is going to go down probably sci-fi history as one of the best characters on TV, because like I said, he was, he was basically the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the Stargate universe, and it was yeah, fantastic. yeah. Well, thank you for saying that, and from your, I, I hope that's true. From your lips to God's ears, that I go down as one of those. Well, I'm certainly fond of it, and uh, yeah, I, I, I totally thought that Braytac deserved a prequel series at some point, like at least some miniseries yeah. or something that gave him a prequel storyline. Yeah, yeah, that would. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I couldn't, I couldn't be good agree more. I could not agree um, more. Yeah. yeah. So either way, so sp- uh, speaking of what you're doing now, you're actually in a movie called the SHU, which is in post production. Is that something you can talk to your listeners, our listeners about? Sure. That's a very, uh, it's a very different world. SHU or SHU stands stands for Solitary Housing Unit. It's a prison film. 
about a guy who's, it's unclear if he's falsely accused or not, but the, it appears he is falsely accused, and he's, it's about the psychological uh, effects of solitary confinement. And it's an intense film, but a good film. Uh, and I play a prison warden who, initially, you don't know where he is. Again, so that face helps. You don't know if he's a bad guy, a good guy, you don't know what. And then eventually things sort of work out. But it's about literally a subjective look at his psychological experience within solitary confinement. So there's a lot of hallucination. There's a lot of different stuff. And it, it, it's a good film. I saw a screening. It was really intense. And hopefully it'll get a... Um, It'll get a, a release soon. And I'm trying to think what else. That's, yeah, that's going on. I did a little bit of work on a series uh, or a, a video game called Twin Mirror. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be released. And what else? God, you know, I was in the midst of doing a play, actually, when the, they closed this down. I was doing a, a Harold Pinter play. Talk about, you know, you know, left field, right field, home plate. I mean, all over the field. A Howard, Harold Pinter play called The Homecoming, which is a, a dark look at family. And, you know, it's sort of a classic of the theater. What I did. Then recently I did a uh, Will and Grace before we closed down, which was great fun. You know, yeah. I play the priest, I'm <laughs> Will and Grace. And I'm trying to think. The, the Star Wars Jedi video game participate in and had a couple of sort of indie films that were out as well you know so and plays you know well oh i know i did oh my god i i couldn't believe i forgot this because it was sort of a dream come true finally had to get a chance to do amadeus and play oh. salieri i don't know Very if you cool. know that movie yeah yeah and that's uh you know because at least particularly when i was younger i, I bore a resemblance to f murray abraham to the point where people uh would get confused and talk to me about Amadeus. It was <laughs> nice to finally get a chance to do it on stage. and that. So I've been, you know, reasonably busy, all things now, considered, and, uh, you know, just trying to keep keep sane and and take care of myself and take care of others, other people that cross into my life. That's really the only thing to be done. I mean, you know, we got a busy year in front of us. So. Yeah, well, what, actually, I always had a, a thought about um, Salieri as a character, and I was wondering what your thoughts, because you've played him. A lot of people consider Salieri as someone who was a failure. That's where the jealousy came from. And my th thought on Salieri was always that he's someone who was a good composer, but he was always just good enough to know why he wasn't great, why he wasn't Mozart. And that's where the anger and jealousy came from. Well, what was your um, read on the character? Was he a yeah, bad composer who was just angry no, about it, or was he no, just good no, enough he, to know he was, he was... He was one of the greatest composers of that time. I mean, you know, he considered. He was one of the... He was the most famous composer of that time. Within that... He was really one of the top within that world. It's just... It's a play about the injustice of genius. Because, you know, this is a guy who did everything right. His craft. He gave his whole life to it. And then this you know, random, you know, stroke of genius comes in. And this, and so it was, no, it, it, it would be foolish. It would be stupid to the play, I think, if you were to play him as a as an untalented thing. As a matter of fact, there's an album of his music that someone gave me a, a, a CD, and it, how quaint is that? But the CD still exists <laughs> of, uh, God, what's her name? Uh, Cecilia Bartoli, I think is her name. And she sings arias from his operas no he was extraordinarily famous and talented he just was not he wasn't touched by god 
He just wasn't touched by, you know, you call it God, call it that stone in 2001 that, you know. Oh, the monolith? Yeah. The monolith. You call it whatever that was, whatever that sound was, that genius. He, he was not touched by that. And he felt the injustice of that uh, is just sort of, that was very human. You know, we, again, you know, I've spoken to you about acting. That is an easy thing for an actor to play. You know, most actors, unless, you know, you were really, you know, you were born with everything. It's, it's a very unjust profession in some ways in terms of if you're trying to equate hard work and commitment with success. It's just it's not work that way. Someone could look a certain way at a certain time, and that's the fashion, and they are catapulted into great celebrity and, and fame and wealth and, and opportunity, which is probably the most upsetting thing. You know, they, they can have all the other stuff, but, you know, the fact that they get to play the big parts simply because the one definition of stardom is when you finally get the parts, you get a chance to play parts you're not even right for. That's mm. stardom, you know. Getting back to Salieri, it's all about the injustice, and it's a war against God in a kind of way. So it was very potent and not difficult on a human level because we do not live in a just society, you know, in terms of it just, that's not the way the world works. It's, there, there's no, I'm not in any way suggesting there's a conspiracy to keep anyone down. I'm just saying at least, you know, in the world of acting, it, it's just, you never know why you cast. Uh, right. I, like I said, I, I thought what Sally already, the one thing I always thought about too, was that there's a certain curse, the talent where you may be good, but you can always, but you can recognize what greatness is and you can notice why you're not. And I always thought yes. that was something very troubling about that. Oh, yes, exactly. It's all of a sudden, you know, there's that great moment where all of a sudden he, there's a great scene where he, he's out for vengeance and he's going to seduce the wife. And he's just, and he's a very moral man prior to this, but it drives him sort of mad, hmm. literally. Mozart drives Salieri mad. As much as, you know, Mozart is driven to death. And uh, all of a sudden he reads Mozart's music, and it's a fair copy. It's, in other words, it's the first copy, but there are no corrections. Mm, and he reads yep. it. And he reads it. And it literally makes, the beauty of it makes him faint. I mean, mm. he's, he just can't. This I'm talking about the stage. Now I, I forget the film, although I've seen the film a number of times. It's just so overwhelming the power of it, and that's when he finally realized that the world is not just. He thinks he's a, for lack of a better word, word he's a. He believes that being a good boy, being a moral man, will make him a great artist. Mm. And if there's anything we know, is that artistry and morality. Uh, don't necessarily go hand in hand. Yep. Yeah. So, but you're absolutely right. It's a fantastic experience. And it was sort of interesting because generally he's played by a young man, a younger man, you know, and then they put an old wig on him. And this director, uh, we did it in a very simple way with only 10 actors, and it was in a, a fairly intimate space, like 250, 300. So it, the story came through. We couldn't do the pageantry as much. And more, most importantly, all of his connections with the audience are him as an old man, or an older man. So I didn't have to, you know, my hair uh, is white. I'm balding. If I'm bald, 
You know, I didn't yeah. have to do any of that when I spoke to the audience, and it was, and because I'm sort of youthful in movement and decent shape, when I slipped the the black wig on, it was easy to appear, you know, to be in my forties or you know late forties, fifty, you know, that was easy, and so it was the reverse of what you generally see on stage, and I I found that fascinating, particularly you know because all of his more personal revelations and his his anger at god and etc and injustice is all it's all a story he's relating within the the play so it was it that was sort of surprised me i thought oh what a shame that got away and then when it came up and the offer came i thought oh am i too old to do it and no it was just the opposite it's actually actually works as long as you can still move and give the impression right, of, right. Uh, yeah it, 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 it's a, the only, I've only ever seen the movie, but it's, it's a phenomenal movie. And it's one of my favorites because of Salieri. And he's such a fantastic, complex character. And I think he's everyone. The, I think the, the viewers can always identify more with Salieri than we're ever going to identify with Mozart. Yeah. You know, uh, on some level, you feel pity for Mozart. But, you know, in the, it's interesting in movies and plays who an audience identifies with. Very often, when an audience identifies, they always identify with the hero, but very often in life they are not the hero. There is a play called The Misanthrope, which is a Moliere play about a guy who speaks his mind. He's misanthropic, and he's a very difficult human being, but he speaks, for lack of a better word, a phrase, truth to power, at his own jeopardy, and he does it all the time, and it's positively pathological. Well, when you see that play, everyone identifies with Alceste, the truth teller. Yeah. Moliere, who wrote that play, it's a satirical examination of everyone else who doesn't tell the truth, that we have to <laughs> lie to get on in society. We yeah. have to, oddly, truth can be very destructive. If you know, there's Henry, God, a Henrik Ibsen play called The Wild Duck, about a truth teller who comes down and ends up destroying a family and causes the death of a young child, a young girl, oh, wow. because in his insistence on truth as liberating. We need, and you know, and that's that oddly is a a thread throughout, a thread throughout theater, theater history. Even you know Eugene O'Neill, he he had the concept of the life lie, you know. So it's always interesting of how we see the truth within the stage and stuff. Anyway, I'm I'm getting off the subject. No, it's it's it's. I find talking to you absolutely fan, um, fascinating. You feel like talking to you feels like talking to a professor of acting and history of um, performance well listen thank you thank you very much it's been a pleasure no oh it's actually been a pleasure it's, it's actually it's an it has been an honor of talking to you like i've been watching stargates for so many years and it's great to know that the actor behind bray tag does not disappoint on what he is like as an individual either <laughs> well thank you thank you very much you're, you're you're very welcome. We have been talking for um, a little for over an hour, so uh, I, I will let you um, go back to your life. Have a great night, All the sir. Best. You too. Bye bye. You know, he did three bumps for us, but all of the same characters, all in three different inflections of his voice. <laughs> oh, nice. And we're back. We are back. You know, he also played Geppetto on um, uh, Once Upon a Time. Oh, cool. Which is like where I rec- where I rec- I looked him up, you know, for the interview and before Jeff did it, and then for this, and I was like, I recognize his face. I'm like, oh, he was just Geppetto. Sh- and like, oh, he's also on Stargate, which is you know a much bigger show <laughs> than Once Upon a Time. You think it is? Well, I mean, Stargate lasted for ten years and had three or four spinoff shows, so yeah, I do. 
Once Upon a Time was seven years, it was canceled. Once Upon a Time was seven years canceled on a major network on prime time. Stargate was never that. The only time Stargate was on a major, major network was probably when it was on Showtime that first year. Yeah, I don't and then know. after I mean, that, it was on sci-fi. And I don't know you can compare it because the amount of the type of audience that ABC has to pull compared to what is a success for sci-fi are, are two different things. Yeah, it is. But I mean, you're talking seven seasons versus like, let's say 10 plus five plus, th- I mean, seven seasons versus like 17 seasons. You know? Okay. But do you think Stargate SG-1 would have lasted that long on ABC? And they're trying to fight it for a prime time spot. Not in the time when it came out. No, not at all. Because it's a uh, uh, ABC doesn't pump out shows like that. You know, only reason why once upon a time did as good as it did is because it hit the, it hit the nostalgia factor of Disney shit when it was being pushed through. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just asking a question though. I don't know that you could say that. I, I don't know, man. That That's a good, that's a kind of a weird, it, it's two different things. It's hard to compare the two. It, it really you know is. What I mean? I mean, it, it is. It really about, is. Like, I don't Supergirl. know that you could, Supergirl's on CBS pulling in 9 million on the ratings and they went yeah. to CW and now it pulls in like 3 or 4 million. Right. And they're going into their last year. Yeah. 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 It's just so. interesting because it's like, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, it's such a different platform. It is. It really you know, is. And it's a niche audience. So it's not quite the same. And but I don't know that what has a bigger worldwide following Stargate or once upon a time. Who has more rapid fans? But that's that's one measurement of success. Yeah. And you're saying it's a bigger show. I don't know. It's yeah. it's it's a it's an interesting question. I, I I'm not opposed to what you're saying at all. Yeah. And and I mean, and, once upon a time, probably t- took more to keep on the ever seven years. But Stargate is going to have the longer following because even though once upon, once upon a time's over, most people don't really talk about that show a lot anymore. People still talk about. Yeah, that's true. Stargate. That's true. That's a good. That's a good way of looking at it. Um. But it's a different type of fandom too. I mean, it people. Is, well, I mean, sci-fi yeah, yeah. dude get, hits sci-fi that nerve, versus. and people just like gravitate towards it. You know what I mean? It's weird. This is true. It's true. It's, it's an interesting topic, but yeah, it's it's yeah, different measures measures of success, success there. Yeah. Well, but, we should probably sit back and listen to Tony in his own words. We already did. We came back. <laughs> we're, on the, we're on the outro we now, started man. talking. It was just like, wow, that's so weird. And then <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just leave that in. Just look, yeah, make right. me look like an idiot. <laughs> so Tony, thanks for coming on. Jeff, thanks for doing that again. As always. Yeah. Uh, Tony was great. And Jeff, uh, he was so nervous. He even said it on the, on the invo on the invo. I can't talk on the interview. Um, you know, cause and Jeff loves Stargate. <laughs> Man, I can't talk right now. All right, let's, let's wrap this up. That's a show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thank you so much to Tony uh, Amendola for coming on and, and, and talking about his career because that was a lot of fun. And if you enjoyed that, then I highly suggest you go over to spoilerverse.com and check out all the back issues of Spoiler Country. There's a lot there to peruse, to go through. Uh, there's no paywall, so you're happy. You're you're more than happy to go through it all and, and and check it all out for free. And not only that, there's a ton of other shows on that site that I think that if you like this one, you're gonna love them. 
And when you do that, and you go to the website and check out all those back issues, all the great interviews we have with a bunch of other Stargate people that have been on the show, which I can't name on top of my head because I just can't think of them right now because it's early in the morning and I'm tired still. You can also read off articles and reviews and previews and a bunch of other cool stuff we have up there that uh, all of our people who work on Silverstock.com have written up. You can go to the store, get a t-shirt or a hoodie or a face mask or something cool. Look fly as sell, help support the site, help support what we do here, and keep it going. There you guys go. All right, guys, we're out of here. But nope, don't forget. One, one more thing. One more thing. Oh, my Lord. Join our Discord. Go to scpod.us slash Discord and join our Discord and come chat with all of us. There you go. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you put that in? Why did you do the pause and let me get going and then go, oh, no, one more thing. Because it was funny. You're just like <laughs> effing with me, man. I thought you were going to say it, okay? And you didn't. <laughs> you forgot. What is it again? Say that Say that uh, URL one more time. scpod.us slash discord. So scpod.us slash D-A-S-C-O-R-D. There you guys go. If you're a Discord fan and you're on there, come stop by and say hello. And you can... Uh, Interact with us on a live and level. Us and everybody else involved in the site, and uh, we have tons of uh, very active rooms in there for a different topic, which is pretty fun. Yep, there you guys go. All right, now, in oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open your mind. Such a weirdo. And read. Who's <laughs> <It's> talking? <laughs> I know. <laughs> 